Welcome everybody to the TBD podcast. Here today with Scott Ditchy, the author of Cigar City Mafia. Scott, I've always been interested in Tampa history. I've talked about that before, but especially the mafia, kind of the Tampa underworld history. So you wrote this book in the early 2000s. How did you find all of this interesting information? And I guess, first of all, how did you get interested in the Tampa mafia scene? Uh, So like a lot of people here, I'm a transplant. I'm originally from New Jersey and grew up, uh, especially in the, the 80s during the reign of John Gotti. So you saw a lot of that news and it was always kind of something I was aware of, but never particularly interested in. And then the early 90s, actually, after I saw Goodfellas in the movies, I wanted to read the book it was based on. So I read that book that kind of led to other ones and it started kind of becoming more of a hobby slash obsession of trying to find out more about organized crime. And then around that time, I moved down here to the Tampa Bay area. And um, I'd say probably mid-95, I was online and there was this mafia website that was pretty much like a text website. You had to scroll like forever to get this stuff. Um, and I started corresponding with a, with a gentleman who's a historian in, in England, David Critchley. And he said, hey, I see you're in the Tampa area. I have this information on the mafia in Tampa. And I knew very little about it. So he sent me all this information, like a packet, you know, copies, photocopies of stuff. And I started reading these stories of, gangland killings, wide open gambling, prohibition era. I'm like, this is pretty interesting. So that kind of started me doing more research. I always liked writing. And then I don't know, somewhere along the line, like 97, 98, I'm like, ah, I think I'm going to write a book. Can't be that hard. <laughs> so have that, you, did you always have ambitions to be a writer? No, not at all. I mean, I, you know, I, I have a, and this now even is just a side thing. I have a full-time career, but I always liked writing, but I always thought I'd do like short stories or novels and Never thought I'd like be so into nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, uh, I guess the subtitle is a complete history of the Tampa underworld. So it's, I guess it's, it's really not a, uh, so much as a story as like almost like a documentary style historical account of kind of how the mafia came to be and, and obviously how it ended here in Tampa. Yeah. It's, it's an overarching picture of kind of the history of the, of the mafia, um, and I kind of meant it that way. And then people can go in and, you know, dig down other rabbit holes if they want. So I wanted to kind of hit, you know, kind of a broad range, kind of give like that 10,000 foot view of, of how organized crime developed here, um, you know, during its height, its reign and where it eventually ended up. Amazing. And then kind of spawning from this book, there's been several others written as well um, on this same subject. So you've got Hitmen. Is that your most recent book? Yeah, that just came out last May. Amazing. The Mafia, Drugs, and the East Harlem Purple Gang. Now, this is not Tampa-based. Yeah, No, that my, my first couple books were Tampa-based, and then I started expanding outward to other areas, um, it, like Garden State Gangland, a book I did about Jersey. Um, but I, I still try to tie in Tampa where I can because part of that is that Tampa had connections to a lot of these other cities. Um and, you know, it, it's interesting, too, is um, how those connections, again, people don't realize how connected the Tampa Mafia were to New York, how they were connected to New Orleans, how they were connected to Kansas City and Chicago. So even though I'm looking at different subjects now and kind of looking at different areas that haven't been written about outside Tampa, I always like to tie those threads back 
back there because I think it, it really gives a complete picture. Um, and as we were talking about earlier, I'm actually kicking around the idea of doing an updated version of Cigar City Mafia here and probably in the next year or two because uh, just to, since this book's come out, I've found so much more information that, that I can add and really kind of flesh the story out even more. Absolutely. The existence of the internet. I mean, this was written, you said you're researching kind of in the late nineties, early two thousands, you know, so obviously now that information is more readily available. I was, I was always really interested. My family came from Santa Stefano, Sicily. And obviously when you think about Italian, American Italian culture, a lot of it's from New York and Long Island and the Northeast. I've kind of always asked my grandfather, like, how the hell did we end up in Tampa? Like in this swamp down here, why didn't we go to New York with the rest of the Italians? And kind of the consensus is like, well, there wasn't a lot of opportunity up there because it's like small fish, big pond mentality. Mm-hmm. Everyone's going to New York. And there was some opportunity down here with the cigars and business and manufacturing. And so some Italians came down here to Tampa. Is that why there's a kind of a connection between New York and Tampa? Because a lot of those people maybe took the same boat over and... Ended yeah. up where they ended up. Yeah, absolutely. There, there are some guys that kind of rise to prominence here in organized crime and in New York that come from the same villages in Sicily. And you also see that connection with New Orleans, which was another southern port city that had a large Sicilian population. So in those early years, the early 1900s, um, you know, there are some of these criminal ties because they grew up in the same village or you know neighboring villages. So that, uh, yeah, to your point... That's why in the underworld, there are those connections there. And then as the mafia gets bigger overall, they just start doing business because you, you start bumping up against each other and, hey, I'd like to do business there, here, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So kind of criminal arrangements. Right. And then I, I kind of grew up in Sarasota from when I was 11 years old until college, born in Tampa, but moved to Sarasota when I was 11. And I noticed in the book, it talks about Sarasota. A lot of those guys had warehouses down in Sarasota. Um what was kind of the connection between this kind of Gulf Coast of Florida and then the other side of Florida? You know, you, you look over there and there's the Fountain Blue Hotel and there's certain organized crime influence there. And obviously Miami getting into the 70s and 1980s. And um, how did how did Florida, I guess, as a whole play a role in organized crime? So they kind of rose in parallel. So. You, know, you had the mafia here in Tampa. You know, let's go around like the 1920s, the Prohibition era. You know, Miami's still a pretty small city at that time. And, you know, infrastructure is not great, so it takes a while to get over to Miami. So Miami kind of develops as what they called an open city. So what that meant were was that mafioso from anywhere could go operate in Miami. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't under the um, auspices of the Tampa mafia generally. So you had guys like Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano, Al Capone. They all kind of go down there in Miami. Uh, Capone does spend a little time in St. Petersburg, but uh, Miami's kind of where he eventually has a second home. So Miami develops as this kind of open city, but as Tampa gets bigger and more powerful, they definitely have a bigger seat at the table in Miami. So they're able to leverage some of that uh, connection. And because they had... Uh, you know, control here in the Tampa Bay area and going down to Sarasota, like you mentioned, um, that, that kind of gave them a little bit of a, of a larger presence in Miami than, than guys from the north that were coming in and eventually plays into how the Tampa Mafia were so big in Cuba. It seems like, too, you know, in the northeast, I'm, I'm assuming there was a lot of eyes on the Mafia, right? There's there's a lot of 
there's just more people in general up there, more police, more federal eyes on you. I would imagine back, you know, in the 1920s, Florida was probably just like the Southern Wild West. You could kind of come down here and get away with probably a lot more than you could in New York. Um, so is that kind of how the original organized crime grew here? Because maybe there wasn't as much watchful eyes. Well, I, I, I'll take it back just a, just a step. You start seeing the emergence of what we call the, the mafia, the Sicilian mafia here in Tampa in the early 1900s, but there's also other kind of organized crime. And, and in fact, by the time prohibition starts, um, the guy who's in charge of organized crime in Tampa is not a Sicilian mafia guy. He's a son of one of the most prominent families in Tampa. His name was Charlie Wall. Um, but what was interesting, and one of the big reasons that the mafia kind of started growing here, especially during Prohibition, is you had Port Tampa Bay, which had this really thriving agricultural trade with Havana. And whereas you're getting tobacco and, and agricultural products, things like that, post-1920, that starts to become rum <laughs> and uh, liquor that's being trafficked through Havana. Mm. So um, th- that becomes a really important step in the evolution of organized crime here. And, and with that, there is some uh, official corruption. So between Charlie Wall and the, and the upstart mafia, they're, they're paying off people to look the other way. Um, you do have federal agents, and you, you read about federal raids and during the Prohibition era especially, but there are also a lot of stories about guys you know, on the take right. during that time. Right, yeah. My grandfather mentioned that. He was mayor in the 19, late 1960s and then in the 1970s, and that was kind of towards the tail end of Belita, mm-hmm. some of the organized crime. And he said when he got into office, things were pretty rough. A lot of people on the take, cops being paid off, executives with the city, you know, dabbling with these guys. And he said it was kind of a mess. Um, and he really was the one that kind of put the kibosh on it and ended it really and sat down with those guys um, and just said, hey, you guys can't do it anymore. And I plan on having him on the podcast and kind of explaining how that all went down, which will be interesting. Oh, yeah, that would be very interesting to hear that. Um, so kind of back to Charlie Wall, you mentioned he was maybe the first most prominent figure in Tampa's underworld. What's that guy's story? How did he begin? And, and- So, again, he grows up you know, part of this dynasty of founding Tampa families that names of parks and <laughs> on buildings, it, people like the McKays, the likes, and the Walls. The Walls were really a, a very prominent family in, in early Tampa. Um, but by the 19-teens, Charlie kind of goes a different path in life. Um, he starts hanging out at some of the opium dens down in the Fort Brook area of, of uh, Tampa, which is kind of down near where the convention center, Amelie Arena, is now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by the late teens, early 20s, he's pretty powerful in terms of controlling the different rackets and vices. Uh, so you have Belita that we talked about, bootlegging, prostitution, narcotics. Um, and because I think of his, because of his family connections, he has some influence in the courts and judges and politicians in his pocket. So, uh, so yeah, it, he becomes really pretty much kind of the first godfather, if you will, of Tampa. Really interesting. And his, his picture is wild, especially this one, uh, Looks like the Times did an article. Click that picture on the top left, Tyler. Charlie Wall poses. I did a post on this. The one to the right of that one, Charlie Wall poses, the newspaper article. It's kind of small. Tampa Tribune. I don't know what what news organization this was back then. One of those. But basically, 
someone tried to kill him. They put a hit on the guy. And for whatever reason, it didn't work out. I don't know if he was shot or injured or whatever. But the paper came in and interviewed him. And he's just sitting there with a picture, almost like a come at me, like, hey, you missed type deal. This dude was unbelievable with his political connections and the boldness. Yeah, Tampa Sunday Tribune, Charlie Wall poses, gunmen destroy trucks. So they tried to hit him in his truck. And he's basically standing out there saying, what are you going to do next time? You know, like, come at me, dude. Crazy. Now, his role, you mentioned, was in Bolita. Now, what was Bolita and why was it so popular? So Bolita was an early version of early version of lottery, really, although it was illegal. Um, and uh, Bolita becomes a term that defines any illegal numbers game, but it really starts off as this game where you have a, have a Bolita set um, made out of little wooden balls numbered 1 to 100 or 0, 1 to 0, 0. And you would throw it in a cloth sack. People would bet on which number to choose, and then you would throw it into the crowd. They called it throwing Belita. Uh, someone would grab onto it, and that would be the winning number. And they would do this all the time, and people would, you know, kind of bet a penny, nickel, dime back way back when. Um, and then it becomes kind of an all-encompassing term for any kind of legal numbers racket. So any kind of, um, so you would go find a Belita guy. He could be have a table set up when he got paid at the cigar factory on Friday, um, some butcher, grocery man. He could be hanging out at the corner. He was your guy. Right. You'd give him a little slip of paper with a number, uh, generally two numbers, sometimes three, um, and, you know, little money, and he would put that Belita bet down for you. And it this is when it really becomes super popular. And I, I can't tell you how many people I bet remember their grandparents right. playing Belita or dads or, you know, some people, uh, I met a couple of people on my tour that they remember taking bets and stuff, it, you know, as a kid, kind of Belita runners. Wow. Um, this one story was uh, uh, this, uh, a woman told me when she was little, her grandmother would give her a slip of paper and a little money to go buy ice cream. And she would give the slip of paper and part of the money to the ice cream man. He was, he was a Belita guy. So, yeah, it becomes this huge illegal gambling activity that generates millions of dollars for the underworld. Wow. And so when this was first created, was it illegal? Like, like was gambling illegal at that time? Wow. Yes. Yeah. And but, but extremely popular enough to where maybe some of the cops were playing, too. And, it, you know, it was oh, kind of. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure, you know, anyone who could play was was playing. Right. I remember my great-grandmother, every time we'd go to visit, she'd always want us to pick up a lottery ticket on the way home. And uh, she was born in Ybor City in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that's kind of where that came from. You know, they, people love the lottery in general, and this was just an early form of it. So I don't, you know, I can see why it's extremely popular. Um, but I guess the reason why it was so, like it says in this article, deadly was because it was so lucrative. Like, there's so much money going into this and it's illegal. So there's no government control. There's no private control. Guys like Charlie Wall step in yep. and control that business. So fighting over control of that business is why, you know, you see a picture on the front of your book, like all the murders and stuff like that. Um, it sounds like in the beginning of the, the 1900s, when Tampa was really becoming a uh, more prominent city and a lot of stuff was happening and the money was flowing things were going relatively well and then it kind of took a dark turn when everyone was vying for control 
And that's when the bloodshed started and Charlie Wall being murdered and kind of talk about that part of that dark history where people are getting gunned down in their vehicles and stuff like that. Yeah. So um, there were some murders early on in, in the 1900s, 19 teens. Um, it was predominantly really insular and uh, among uh, so like Sicilian mafioso guys that were emerging here. But, but kind of what you were referring to starts in about 1928. And um, there's kind of two errors. There's 1928 to 1940, you have this spate of gangland killings, attempted assassination shootings, um, most of which are happening in Ybor City. Most of them happen like right out in the open. And this is a war for control of Belit and the other rackets. And, and there's kind of a few different factions, but really it's kind of the mafia versus Charlie Wall and his operation. So you see guys from both sides getting gunned down. That kind of ends in the fall of 1940. Uh, the head of the mafia at that time is killed uh, just outside of Ybor City. So the 40s get a little bit of quiet. Then in the 50s, you start this another spate of violence, um, some internal uh, factionalization in the mafia family and some other house cleaning killings. Um, but this kind of collective era from about 1928 through about 1959, it, it was termed by the newspapers as the era of blood um, and, you know, got a lot of media attention. You would see the Tampa Tribune or the Tampa Daily Times, they would have front page news about the latest gangland killing for weeks, months on end. Um, th these were really big news articles. And a, a part of that reason was Tampa was still pretty small, I think. It's in between fifty and sixty thousand, between fifty and you know fifty nine, so it's still kind of a, a, a small city, um, and it, it makes national news for sure. If you now you can go in newspapers, I come, but you'll see like it gets picked up by the AP Wire, and there's stories around the country of these gangland killings in in Tampa. Why do you think that there's so much prevalence on guys in Chicago and New York and the mafia? This to me is just as interesting, just as wild and. Uh, just crazy. Um, why do you think there's so much, I guess, pop culture coverage, books, movies, et cetera, on the Northeast and on the Midwest with the mafia versus Florida? Florida, to me, has just as cool a story as any place. Well, um, it, it, two reasons, uh, size and scope of what they were doing in New York and Chicago were you know, many, many times greater. So the violence and the stuff going on was, was more pronounced and prevalent. Also, you have, you know, especially back then, two major media markets, so it's getting a lot more attention. But um, Chicago, you had Al Capone, who was like the first celebrity gangster. That certainly helped elevate that. Um, but, but also, as you know, we're, we're talking here in Tampa, you know, like I said, 30, 40 killings, attempted assassinations. There were over 1,000 in Chicago during the Prohibition era. So crazy. So, you know, Scale lot, of that. I yeah, mean, that's so like a it's ground a lot war. more violent. Um, uh, New York City, just you know, a lot more going on there and, and bigger. But, um, you know, what was going on in Tampa was also going on in Denver and Pittsburgh and Cleveland in, in 26 cities. And a lot of them were these smaller cities, New mm. Orleans. So it wasn't really getting as much attention and maybe to the benefit. <laughs> Interesting. I didn't, I didn't really know that, that there was almost a crime wave across the country. Yeah, the Prohibition era was, was, was pretty violent, uh, yeah. probably per capita. There's been people who've written specifically about that era. So the, you have this like speed of violence during that time with 
with these different gangs. Mm-hmm. And then the lottery, Bolita. Now, was this isolated to Tampa, the South, Florida? Did Miami also have this? Uh, Miami later had Bolita too, yeah. But it's, uh, I want to say it originated in Tampa because it's based on a game that came over from Spain. But Tampa was kind of the early epicenter of it. Wow. What a different place. You look at some of these old pictures with the streetcar and Ybor City and some of these guys, the way they're dressed. What a wild sight Ybor and Tampa must have been 100 years ago in the 1920s. Um, Super, super interesting. So kind of this all ends just by kind of like you mentioned, uh, control, right? People getting murdered. Um, And obviously, as time goes on, the police and the government says, all right, like we got to we got to put a stop to this. This kind of story and culture is extremely popular when people visit. And you also have a tour company. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so uh, Tampa Mafia Tours, tampamafia.com, real easy to remember. We've been doing the tours now, I'm going to say about 13 years. We're That's a little awesome. vague on exactly which year we started. But uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we do them all the time. Uh, we, have a, we have a happy hour tour. Primarily, we do the tours on Saturdays, and um, it's still super popular. I had three sold-out tours last week. Um, Amazing. People still... People still enjoy it, and, and it's interesting because you get a mix of, of locals, people that grow up here. And I've had, actually not too long ago, I had two relatives of someone who I write about extensively in the book that were on the tour. Um, so there, there's that interest. But because the Tampa Bay Area is growing so much, there's so many new people moving in, I, th- I think people that, that are just coming to this area see it, and they're like, want to know more. Like we talked about earlier, you don't really think about Tampa when you think about the mafia. No. No, but it has it has such an interesting deep story. I I'd, I'd imagine anyone visiting here that finds out, wow, Tampa had a mafia scene. You know, we're visiting here. Let's go check that out. That's super cool. Um, now Santo Traficante, that's a big name mm-hmm. in in mafia culture and in, and in mafia history. Can you talk about his specific role? Now was he was he you know alongside of Charlie Wall? Was he Charlie's rival? Kind of how did that relationship play out? So his father was, Santo Traficante Sr. was was kind of Charlie Wall's rival and partner rival as criminal alliances go. Right. Um, so he kind of takes over as the head of the mafia in about 1940 after the, the murder of Ignacio Antonori. And uh, Santo Sr., I, I believe sometime in the early 50s, starts transferring power to Santo Jr. And um, basically that's the time where, where the Tampa Mafia really get to that next level. They start really establishing connections with mafioso in other cities. They start investing in Havana, Cuba. Um, and then by the 1950s, Santo Traficante Jr. becomes pretty, uh, maybe more in the 60s, but becomes known in the newspapers. You see his name a lot more. He's um, implicated and you know, subpoenaed for potentially being part of a murder of Albert Anastasia in New York in 57. He's arrested at the Appalachian uh, meeting uh, he starts showing up a lot more. He becomes more of a known entity. But at the same time, he's becoming even more powerful as as a mob boss and becomes uh, kind of one of the, you know, much smaller family. He's not going to be competing against New York, but he has a lot of outsized influence for mm-hmm. how big his family was. And those guys coming down from New York, like we mentioned, there's ties between kind of the Northeast and Tampa. The guys coming down here, I would assume, you know, get with Mr. Traficante. Yeah, especially Dude. in Miami and, and right. Cuba too. And, you know, Traficante next to Meyer Lansky probably was the most influential mobster in uh, pre-Castro Cuba. My grandfather always told me the Tahitian Inn was an old hangout yeah. for these guys. Yep. 
Um, and it's still there today. Is that the same location? Yeah. On same Dale Mabry? Yeah. No same way. Location, yeah. Wow. So that was a hangout. Yeah. He said that there was back rooms they'd have parties in, they'd hang out in there, get together, do their business dealings, whatever. What are some other uh, mafia hangouts around Tampa? Uh, probably a big one, which is not there anymore, although the restaurant itself has moved, was the old Malio's on Dale Mabry. Uh, right. That was a real big one back in the day. Uh, there's some buildings in, in Ybor City that we talk about on the tour that used to be like old gambling places. Um, and, and a lot of them were like bars. They were really big into bars. So the, the mafia in Tampa, that was one of their like legitimate business specialties were, were bars and lounges. So there, there's a lot of bars now that even though they're not named the same and they've changed, that, you know, that building is an old hangout. Uh, Dale Mabry is a really good stretch of old hangouts and, uh, and Ybor City. Those are like two big areas where a lot of the buildings still exist. Wow. That's, that's wild. Yeah. It's, I've heard of Malia's before and then, um, the Tahitian Inn. Um, what about Donatello or was that, that kind of come later? Yeah. No. So Donatello's early on had some, um, some influence from a couple mob guys that that financed it and were involved in the ownership. Um, but th- that's back when it opened up in the 1980s. Mm. Uh, but then, it's just uh, one of the better Italian restaurants in, in Tampa. Right, yeah. It's the classic Italian yeah, food. You know, you, you go to Olivia or um, just some of the new at Roca is a, a great one, but it's more of modern flair. Yes. But Donatello is truly, truly authentic Italian. I love that place. Yeah, absolutely. My, my uh, mother and father's first date was there back in, oh. I think, the late 80s. Yeah, nice. kind of interesting. Um, people have always thought my family was in the mafia, the Greco family. I guess because maybe my father and grandfather were in politics and they were Italian. I don't, I don't know. Is that like racist or something? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but people just somehow think that we were involved in some way, but that might just have to do with Italian culture. Yeah. I never found anything in my research. On okay, that, good. For sure. Good. Okay. We're in the clear. Thank God. <laughs> um, so kind of going back to that era of blood, um, now, how bloody did it get? I think you mentioned there was 23 killings, something like that, over the course of a decade, decade and a half, something like that. Um, and you mentioned broad daylight. I mean, what was the style of hit that these guys would do? Just roll up and... Yeah, one of the most popular was kind of literally almost drive-by shootings with shotguns. Um, that, that Especially in the 30s, that was probably more of the killings happened that way. Where wow. Guys were killed either driving or in cars and with shotgun blasts that was kind of the mo and then there were a few other killings that were handguns interestingly you know and i talk about some of my tours when you when you think about kind of the prohibition era and, and mobsters like al capone think about the tommy gun and the machine gun right never used here in tampa never once never any of these mob killings it was interesting handgun or um some more brute force like how charlie wall was killed and but the shotgun was really the weapon of choice Super interesting. Yeah. You know, you watch that movie, the untouchables or any other mm-hmm. mob movie, they're running around with Tommy guns. So yeah. it was, it was more so of roll up on the dude, pull out the shotguns, do the business and drive away. Pretty wild. And then Charlie wall. Now, how was he taken out? So he was killed in, in April of, of 1955. And um, it, how it happened is his wife was out of town visiting her sister, I think in Claremont or somewhere in that area of Florida. And, uh, one night, Charlie's at a bar, the Dream Bar, which is owned by the Traficantes. He gets really drunk, and uh, Nick Scaglione offers to take him home. 
So he takes him home, drops Charlie Wall off at his house. Charlie Wall goes in his house. His wife comes home from out of town a few days later and walks, opens the door, walks in the back, straight back bedroom of their house, and Charlie's there murdered. He had his throat cut, um, and his head was bashed in by kind of like a police blackjack filled with bird seed um, and buckshot. Oh, So probably to subdue him, and then they cut his neck. Um, so this is still considered on the books an unsolved murder by Tampa PD, but it, it was most definitely mob-related. And it, it, what it was was just years of grudges <laughs> that, the moth, that Charlie Wall had and the mafia had amassed between them. Um, but interestingly, I was looking through the murder files. I had an opportunity a couple of years ago to take a look through the case file. And um, actually, one of the earlier suspects was the wife because <laughs> she was out of town. They thought maybe this was, you know, yeah. kind of a domestic thing. Um, but but I, I talked to a couple cops who have since passed that, that were active back then and worked the case. And they, they said it was most likely a, a mafia hit. And it was somebody new because he let them in the house. Mm. So, um, yeah, but it's still, still officially an unsolved cold case. Wow. That's really crazy. I, I mean, I, I would imagine the sentiment just of the citizens, they were probably scared. Do you think that the, that the, the common people in Tampa were running around scared or they're like, hey, I'm not in the mafia I just enjoy Belita, you know, I'm not afraid to get taken out. Yeah, I, and I talked to people that were around during that time, and they said it was just, it was kind of happening Isolated, here. Yeah, yeah. Isolated. Kind of like today, you know, in some inner cities, there's crime, and then there's there's some of the areas of town that don't have that. So I guess similarly, it was it was the same type of deal. Um, wow, so, so Charlie Wall gets murdered. Um, people are ro- rolling up to you with shotguns, stuff like that. Uh, was there a tipping point where someone was killed and it kind of cut the head off the snake in terms of power control. Was there a power shift at all in these murders? I think in 1940, when Ignacio Antonori is killed and Traficani moves in, he's, he's kind of coming with more backing and he's able to kind of push Charlie wall to the side. So that was a killing that I think that shifted power. And then the killing that's on the front, cover of my book, The Killing of Jimmy Lamia in 1950, kind of solidifies the Traficante's hold uh, on the mafia here in Tampa, kind of a little bit of an internal power struggle for control. Um, so yeah, there, there were a few. And, and Traficante himself, Traficante Jr. was was shot at in 1953. He was shot in the, in the arm. So he wasn't immune to you know, potentially being the target. But by the 1950s, um, the mafia really gained most control. And then they're 1960s pretty quiet in terms of any kind of violence in Tampa. Mm, interesting. Yeah, this this picture on the cover of your book here. Who's the guy in the background? Is that a police officer? Yeah, yeah, detective I, of some sort. Yeah, I knew his name. I forgot it over the years, but uh, yeah, unreal. And just the picture. I mean, the blood all over the seat. Extremely violent. Uh, th- th- these pictures blow my mind. It's. Uh, you just, you can't imagine these guys, you know, you, you look at old culture and everyone's wearing a suit and they got the hat and the ties on and there's almost a sense of this weird, like professionalism, yeah. all these guys. And obviously the classic gangster is the guy with that nice suit on, but he's got the Tommy gun. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's in Chicago and New York. Was it the same type of uh, kind of vibe here where everyone's dressed up shooting each other? I mean, it's the same look or maybe because we're in Florida, People are hanging out in flip-flops. Hey, no, I don't think that was the case. But uh, actually, it's funny. I, I was reading about um, 
not too long ago doing some research into a killing that took place in, in August of 1919, so August. And the guy was wearing a three-piece suit. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But you see in the 50s, they no air conditioning. Shirts, shirts and stuff. Yeah. But uh, you know, some of them are really well-dressed. There, there's some really good pictures of Santo Traficante Jr., especially in, in Havana, then later when he moves to Miami, you know, dressed really nice, the nice suit and everything looking good. So I, I think, yeah, a lot of them you would see like that sometimes. And then uh, there's some really good pictures of guys like they're being rousted out of their bed in the morning for an arrest and they're all like looking disheveled and everything. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny how those outfits just, you know, played a role. Yeah, no track suits down here, though. Like the, yeah, no, no, not at all. Right. It was a different, I guess, culture. Um, do you know Max with Ebor City Walking Tours? Yeah. Great guy. Uh, I had him on. He had a really interesting just history and perspective on this city and all that. He was telling me that a lot of these guys, these cigar rollers were very wealthy. They ended up making a lot of money. And, you know, even the actual workers, the ones rolling cigars Mm -hmm. were wearing three-piece suits. Um, Did the cigar industry play any type of a role in the uh, organized crime at all? So um, it was kind of always around it. So, uh, in in fact, if you look at, like, the old census records of Santo Traficante Sr., he lists his occupation as cigar worker. (laughs) So I think a lot of them um, were involved in the legitimate side and some of them worked in it. Um, there was a spate there in, in the early 1900s when cigar factories were being robbed. In fact, if you go to the J.C. Newman factory, they can show you the, the back staircase that the management used to use to get away. Uh, so there were some ties. Uh, they would sell Belita out of the cigar um, factory. So I think that was a real big uh, thing. Because like you said, you know that money, they would get paid and a lot of guys would go bet bet on Belita. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was never any direct involvement with the mafia in the ownership of the factories or involvement in like the unions. Um, and I, and I think part of that was because especially about the fifties, when forties and fifties, when the mafia came to power, they were looking at other avenues. Um, and even though the mafia, you mentioned before the Northeast, Chicago, Detroit, heavily involved in labor unions, that wasn't as big of a case here because labor, there weren't, many big labor unions in, in Tampa. So that labor racketeering, that labor aspect didn't come till a little bit later. Mm. And I was primarily out of Miami. Okay. So Belita was, was really the driving force. Also the prohibition of alcohol. Um, and then the labor piece of it uh, didn't really take an effect on the mafia here in Tampa. No. So yeah, Belita legal gambling, definitely the biggest moneymaker mm. prohibition until that ended in 33 narcotics. Um mm. Mob guys involved in narcotics operations here out of out of Tampa and Ebor. That was another big moneymaker. You know, one of the one of the big myths about the mafia is that they are not involved in drugs. Or, yeah. So, yeah, nothing could be further from the truth. Well, in a weird way, it almost seems like a gentleman's uh, organized crime operation. You know, again, right? They're in suits. They look professional. Yeah. Uh, gambling. Eh, you know, it's it's not so dirty yeah um but they were involved with narcotics there were some guys yeah yeah not all of them i mean some there were guys like that were just gamblers or just in that but yeah there was definitely some involvement in narcotics and it starts up in the 1920s during prohibition era they're bringing in drugs from havana what kind of narcotics back in the early 1900s oh really heroin morphine wow um some marijuana wasn't super popular I, i mean i'm it's not as um, uh, they, they didn't write as much about marijuana. It was really, from what I read, in Ybor City, it was primarily heroin and morphine. Now, this is a ton of information, Scott. And, you know, you, 
we were kind of mentioning before the show how you dug up some of these specifics. You've mentioned looking at some police case records, talking with individuals that may have been still alive 20 years ago that were involved in this. Um, man, it, it seems like a ton of information to dig through. And, you know, you starting in the late 90s and the book releasing in 2004, it doesn't seem like a lot of time. But the book is so extensive. Are you just a flood of information? I mean, how did you learn all this so quickly? Yeah, so a lot of it was trial and error about how to get the information. So uh, I started with material. I would go to the, um, the library and go. Some of your older viewers might remember Microfish. We have to like literally look through this thing and crank the wheel for old newspaper articles. So kind of I would follow little threads or breadcrumbs. If I get a date of when a guy's killed, all right, go look up the newspaper. What else can we find? Can we get his mugshot? Do they have the police records for it? Um, and back then, there wasn't, the internet didn't have all that on it. You know, this was still in the first, you know, five, six years of the internet really starting to become popular. So you had to go to the National Archives to look through their stuff. You had to go to the Tampa Tribune to look through their archives. You had to go to the library to dig through old newspapers and files. Um, so it was, it was more time consuming. It was fun for sure, especially when you found something good. Right. Um, a lot of that now is, is available and accessible online, which makes it so much easier and so much quicker to do research for sure. Right. Yeah. And then obviously time passing, right? This yeah. came out in 2004. And then you mentioned you're working on a second book. Um, is there anything in your book, Cigar City Mafia, that you found out to not be true, or maybe the story was a little bit different? Yeah, a few of the few of the murders um, maybe maybe didn't happen exactly like I wrote them, mm-hmm. um, and not in in the way like they didn't die that way. They did, but might have been tied into something bigger. Uh, oh. One murder in particular found out a couple of years ago might have been tied into the mob in Chicago. So it's not really changing anything, but expanding on it and kind of fleshing it out more and showing how some of these murders, like one here and one here over you know, a five-year period in Tampa, might have actually been connected. So it, it's just a lot of stuff that's filled in. And the other thing, too, it's pushed the murders back earlier. Like, mm-hmm. as I mentioned before, the early 1900s, I started finding more stuff out, you know, pre-Prohibition era that was going on here. So, yeah, I... I'm still kind of figuring out what I want to do, and it's not going to be a full rewrite, maybe just an update to add, add some additional stuff in there and really flesh it out. You ever thought about moving into a fictional story? No. No? No. I'm so used to writing nonfiction now, I think that'd be a that'd be difficult for me to do. It just seems ripe for a movie, you know, almost yeah. like a Al Capone-style movie of Charlie Wall, how he came to be. I mean, his story is like a movie prominent kid probably could have been the mayor of the city and just turned to a life of crime and really one of the biggest gangsters here was charlie wall right yeah absolutely um kind of going back uh the clubs here the italian club Mm -hmm. um did they play a role in protecting the mafia and having those connections or were they like look those are the bad italians we don't want you know anything to do with those guys yeah i think the latter you never saw any kind of illegal activity now the guys in here were members of the Italian club and right. were involved in it from that end, but there was never any, like they didn't run stuff out of the club. They didn't, mm-hmm. you know. So yeah, I, th- I think very much the latter where it was like, Hey, we're legit. You guys. 
do what you do out there. I mean, it, you know, you look at the Italian club in Ybor City, and I'm not, I'm not going to lie, it looks like a mobster headquarters. I mean, it literally does. Um, so, so they try to separate themselves, obviously. Um, I, my, my grandfather told me that, you know, by the time he was in office and he met with these guys to try to completely put it into this, um, they said something along the lines of like, how can you do this to us? Like, we're family type deal. So I'm sure there was animosity between some of the Italians that were trying to make an honest living here. And then obviously the Italians that came here and, and saw an opportunity with this organized crime. Yeah. And, and I want to be clear, two things. Number one, it wasn't just the Italians here. The, there were a lot of Spanish and Cuban and white guys that were involved. The Charlie Wall, perfect example, but uh, especially a lot of the independent Cuban and Spanish Belita guys. So mm-hmm. it was just anyone kind of coming up was a way to make money. But it just happened to be that the Sicilian Mafia, because their nationwide network, was able to gain control here. Um, and yeah, and the other thing is, uh, you know, I, I always stress this, I'm not talking about the community in general by any means. We're mm-hmm. talking about a very small sliver who just, you know, part of the interest. So kind of to um, to ameliorate some of that feelings in my Garden State Gangland book, the whole introduction is about my grandfather, who is a bookmaker, a uh, legal book, bookie up in uh, New Jersey. So I uh, want to make sure that, hey, everyone has, has skeletons in their closet. But uh, right. you know, I'm just writing about a, a part of an important part of Tampa history um, that has connections to all these other crime histories around the United States. So I think it's a uh, and I think as time goes by, more people appreciate, you know, and, and certainly as more books like this have been written in other cities and, and stuff, I think people appreciate that more. Yeah, Absolutely. I think that whenever someone thinks of the mafia, they think of Italians mm-hmm. or Sicilians. Um, but I guess you're right. It just, you know, crime can come from any race or any particular type of people. I guess it's just all opportunity. And maybe not even family upbringing. A guy like Charlie Wall, I mean, he had a, sounds like a great childhood and came from a great family. And I guess the opportunity was in front of him to lead that life of crime. Yeah, and the other interesting thing is a lot of the, the guys that were, Involved in the mafia here in Tampa uh, and some of the other small cities, but but Tampa specifically, like it only went one or two generations after that. And then they were like, so they didn't encourage their kids to come get involved in it. Um, you know, so starting like 1960s and 70s, you kind of see that last era of wise guys coming up. So uh, the other interesting thing is, to, you know, Tampa kind of fades away. It, it does, there's no like super big bust. There's no Sammy Gravano informant here. Just over time, as they assimilate more, as just time goes by, they you know there's more opportunity to go into real estate or you know something like that rather than trying to squeeze a living out of playing Bolita. <laughs> right, and what a quick uh, kind of burst of just energy in the city it was. I mean, looking back to the late 1800s to the 1920s, you might be talking about a period of 40, 50 years, um, going from swampland to this booming town. And the era of blood and the murders and then the organized crime, but also the industry happening here and the cigar manufacturing and the money and the attention on the city. It's just it's pretty wild to see how quickly it kind of came and went, because you're right. I think from maybe the 1950s, you know, when my grandfather was in office and then even by the time I was born in the early 90s, like Tampa was kind of a, you know, a much slower town than it was back then. Does that have anything to do with? The mafia, it seems like the actual cigar industry and the organized crime industry collapsed almost at the same time, it seems. 
Well, I would say the mafia later than that, but um, I, I think there are a few reasons for that. Number one, like I, I said before, the um, you know Belita kind of goes away with the lottery, so that takes a big revenue source. So you start seeing more kind of white collar crime in the '80s and early '90s, and then that it just kind of starts fading away. And you see that overall with the mafia in the United States and, and really a combination of law enforcement pressure and other factors go into that. Um, and the other thing too is um, from a criminal perspective, the, the mafia in general, especially here in, in Tampa and with their connections in Miami, kind of missed the boat in this whole kind of cocaine cowboys era where you have the rise of these other organized crime groups who are now taking taking over those vacuums and those areas that the mafia years ago were. So it's kind of a little bit of a succession in some of this activity. Different people. Yeah, 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 for sure. And then kind of moving into the cocaine era, right? That was obviously mostly down in Miami. You know, everyone knows that kind of a story, Scarface and all that that sort of stuff. Uh, Did the mafia have any other presence leading into that era here in Tampa? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, there was another kind of spate of violence in the 70s, and your grandfather could probably attest to that. It was around the time he was you know, involved, heavily involved, uh, which culminates in, in one of the few times that a law enforcement officer is killed by organized crime in the United States uh, was the killing of Richard Cloud, uh, who was a vice cop here in, in Tampa. And that really kind of opened up uh, this huge kind of law enforcement focus on the, what was still around mafia-wise in Tampa. Um so, yeah, the, the 70s kind of show up as this other violent era, if you will. It was you know, the 30s, 50s, 70s, like every 20 years. Seems like that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Wow, amazing. Um, so into the future, uh, you kind of mentioned that you didn't want to write maybe a, a fiction book, something like that. I've always thought it would be really interesting to have fictional stories about Tampa um, become more prevalent now that there's more people moving here. Um, I think a lot of what makes a city a city is that history and culture. You know, when you think of Boston, New York, or Chicago, certain things come into mind. I think Tampa really has a cool history and culture to mm-hmm. be explored. Cigars and, of course, this mafia stuff is super, super interesting. Um, is there any any project that you've heard about or you're working on where a movie producer comes to you since you're so knowledgeable on this sort of stuff? Like, are you, are you working on anything outside of your own personal ambitions? Yeah. So there's two things with that. Number one is um, actually talking to someone now about optioning this book for a, for a podcast potentially cool. like a, you know, like a 10 part podcast about the history of mafia in Tampa so with that, uh, somebody who's interested in doing something that would come and option my book. And I've had an option twice. Nothing ever really came of it. But what that is, is a producer some has the rights to develop that. Mm. Uh, but the other thing that I, that I kind of do pretty frequently is I'm like a talking head on like the Discovery Channel or History Channel, any kind of mob show. Um, so I, I've done quite a few of those. In fact, I was just filmed for one um, here in Tampa. Well, I don't know, maybe a couple months ago it's going to be on. I think on Paramount, it's it's a uh, documentary series called Mafia Spies about the mafia's role in the CIA plots against Castro, and um, so I do those. Those are a lot of fun to do. That's awesome. There's uh there's been a lot of 
more media and a lot of books that have come out in the last 10 years or so connecting some some government entities, whether it's CIA or some of those organizations with organized crime. I hadn't seen that when I was younger. I love this mafia stuff, like like I've been saying. Um, CIA connected to uh, Manson and uh, um, JFK killings and like some of that stuff and some of those books are coming out. Have you seen any connection with the government, with, with the Tampa mafia at all, or the Tampa underworld in general? Oh, yeah, for sure. So the CIA basically hired Santo Traficante to, to kill Castro. Um, it's kind of summarizing a, a more <laughs> wow. complex and in-depth story. But, but yeah, there were ties between Traficante, uh, Sam Giancana, who's the boss of Chicago, uh, some other mobsters, and the intelligence community because, you know, the mafia kind of gets kind of kicked out, let's say, out of Cuba in 59 when Castro takes over. And Cuba, before that, was very lucrative. You know, they had hotels, they had casinos. Now they lose this big source of revenue. So the CIA wants Castro out for political reasons. So it's kind of like, a, hey, friend of my, or enemy of my enemy is my friend kind right. of thing. That's what I was looking for. So the U.S. intelligence community kind of approaches the mafia. And there's a lot more than, than just one meeting. I mean, they're setting up training camps for anti-Castro activists in, in the Everglades that, that has some mafia involvement. Um, the Bay of Pigs invasion, there's, there's, a, there's mob connections both before and after to that. Um, and this kind of uh, comes to a head in the, I think it was the early 1970s. I can't remember the exact year, but Jack Anderson, who was a writer for the Washington Post, started publishing these stories, kind of opening up people you know, to the fact that your U.S. intelligence apparatus definitely had ties to organized crime. And, and some of that even exists going back to the 1930s and 40s. Um, wow. And I don't, don't want to go too far down the path, but like Lucky Luciano, um, he helps the U.S. kind of secure the ports of New York during World War II against sabotage. So there, there's these really interesting kind of threads throughout probably the first half of the 20th century in America in through probably the early 70s where there's connections between organized crime, the mafia, and, and certain government offices. And then, you know, on the flip side, you have others like the FBI that are coming after them and the um, Bureau of Narcotics. Yeah. Isn't that weird? They're, yeah. they're getting it from both ends. Yeah. Uh, Traficani especially, I mean, that guy, you know, he was a very prevalent figure Seems like he was always in the newspaper, always in front of the camera. Yeah. Um, I think you mentioned he testified in front of Congress. Mm -hmm. So he's being solicited on the back end by the CIA and is eventually asked to help take out Fidel Castro. Correct, yeah. Holy shit. Now, is this kind of a revelation that has come come up since you've written the book, or was this found no, out? No, no, this was in the book. And I, my second book, The Silent Dawn, is really focuses on trafficking, and I get much more in-depth. Ooh, I got to read that one. Yeah. So a lot of this started coming to light in the 70s, um, really, uh, about this activity. But most a lot of people don't know about it. So Interesting. I You know, did they prop up any sort of... Uh, Organized crime in Tampa, has that been found out? Like, were they um, allowing Charlie Wall to run the Bolita business or anything like that? No, not really that. There, that was more on the local level of kind of paying off yeah. the cops or the sheriff right. or whatever. Um, so you don't really see a lot of the kind of the CIA getting involved locally. Right, they care was, about national interest. Exactly, yeah. exactly. 
Yeah, wow. Interesting they procured Lucky Luciano to go get the port, you know. Yeah, that that's another long story. And there, there's been a, at least one or two books that have been written about that. Wow. We need more pop culture movies on this stuff, man. Yeah, I'm telling you. absolutely. The, the Ben Affleck movie I thought was so cool to see Ybor City. Now, we talked about before we went live, that actually was a set in Georgia. Yeah. Um, did you, when they were making that movie, were you approached at all? Uh, so the only involvement I had is when Dennis Lehane, who, um, who I'd met previously, really nice guy, was writing the book. Um, I gave him a tour of Ebor, showing him the old gangster haunt, so he can kind of get a little bit of a flavor. So I got a nice acknowledgement. Oh, awesome. So, yeah. That's cool. I love that movie. I thought it was so interesting. Kind of a shame they didn't shoot it in Ebor City. Do you, yeah. know, do you know why they didn't? Well, tax incentives. It was 100%. Yeah, Georgia had tax incentives for movie production, and Florida didn't. So, I think we need to change that. You know, we <laughs> We've been to- talking about it for a long time, but I don't know. Got other things going on, I guess. I guess so. Yeah, it was um, it was really cool to see how they set up Ebor City. They had the little train station and Seventh yeah. Avenue, and the uniforms look awesome. And Tampa PD's there, and um, I thought that was really really cool. To my knowledge, really the only movie that explores that specific Tampa underworld. Exactly. Yeah. And we've talked about too. It's in other movies. I know Goodfellas has a mention. Yep. They come down to Tampa. Yeah. To the I don't think they call it the Lowry Park Zoo. In fact, I, I, I think they changed the name. Now it's Zoo Tampa. Yes. Yeah. But it says in the in the movie, like, the Tampa Zoo, yeah, and they're yeah. burying the guy. And um, What other movies is Tampa in? Tampa Mafia movies. Um, Donnie Brasco, the movie uh, with Al Pacino, Johnny Depp, came out in the mid-'90s. The Florida scenes in the movie take place in Miami, but in reality, you know, it's based on a true story takes place in Newport Ritchie, where the FBI set up an illegal casino to ensnare members of the New York Bonanno family and Traficante. They're unsuccessful on getting Traficante, but they arrest these these other wise guys, and there's an undercover FBI agent involved. It, it, it's a really good movie. The book's even better, um, but you know, they missed an opportunity to set that in Tampa. Uh, but there's another movie, not specifically mafia-related, but kind of organized crime Medellin drug cartel, Pablo Escobar. There's a movie called The Infiltrator with Brian Cranston. Uh, came out, I think, in 2016-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's based on a true story that happens in Tampa. And they filmed it all in Tampa. So you can see all these great shots all cool. over Tampa and St. Pete Beach and other areas. That's awesome. It seems like forever when people think of organized crime in Florida, Miami is what yes. first comes yeah, to mind. Sure. And maybe that's why filmmakers just say, just throw Miami at it. You know, maybe we know it was Tampa, but just throw, people don't know what Tampa is, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's, no, I, I think it's market. Yeah, exactly. It's branding and marketing on that. For sure. But really, Tampa kind of had that prominence. Like you mentioned, you know, when a lot of this stuff was going on in the 1920s and even before that, Miami was a much, much smaller oh, city yeah. than Tampa. Yeah, for sure. And then New Orleans, people don't realize how much of an influence that city had even as late or as early rather as the late 1700s. I mean, in the late 1700s, New Orleans was a happening town. So there's really good evidence that the mafia in the United States, the first city they were active in was New Orleans um, because of, like you said, it's an older city, had had this thriving uh, port there. Um, But, you know, people think New York City is where the mafia started in the United States, but there's been some really good stuff written about how New Orleans is most likely the origin of the, the mafia in the United States. Wow. Interesting. 
It's pretty crazy, too, thinking about the FBI literally setting up an entire illegal gambling you yeah. know, casino, basically, and trying to entrap these guys. The, the national effort to not only entrap these guys on the FBI side, but then the, the intelligence side, the CIA coming in and trying to influence, influence them for national interests, like the push and the pull, and then the violence added to it. How, how prevalent was this, you know, at its peak, which you kind of mentioned was like 1920s, 30s in Tampa. How prevalent was it just as a citizen? You see the newspaper, another gang killing whatever. It just seems like this is such a huge operation, not just for the actual mafia, but for the police and the cops and the FBI. And it's like the spider web of craziness. Yeah. So keep in mind, the FBI really don't get involved till the 60s. So the 20s is, is really more local, mm. police local and sheriff and state involvement as well, 20s and 30s. So um, I think, you know, just talking to people that grew up in Ebor, even a little bit later on, um, just, you know, they always kind of knew it was there. It was part of growing up in Tampa. Never necessarily affected their life, but like, you know, like, Oh, I remember seeing Santo Traficante at this restaurant when I was a kid. Or so they always knew it was around, it was there, but it wasn't like it was just kind of part of growing up in Tampa at the time. So I, I think it was kind of there in the background, almost if you will, unless you were involved in it, really didn't affect you, but you knew it was there. Right. Does um now you have the website Tampa Mafia? Yeah. And this is where people can find your crime tour, which is so cool. I gotta do it. Um, but do you have a physical location, like a museum of some sort, or is there one in Tampa? No, no, no. There. Um, so I'm on the advisory council of the Mob Museum in, in Vegas, which is um, uh, just celebrated its tenth year last year, its tenth anniversary. Um, an amazing institution, the first and only mob, real. Well, it's not the first, but it's the biggest dedicated dedicated yeah. museum to uh, organized crime and law enforcement, and. Um, I've been fortunate enough to have been involved with them for a long time and donated actually a lot of uh, stuff that I had accumulated over the years um, to them. And it was funny when they first started, they, they didn't have anywhere near what they have now in terms of artifacts and materials. So th they had a wall with these mugshots of gangsters on it. And, um, you know, three quarters, well, I don't know, three quarters, there were a lot from Tampa because I uh, donated a bunch of these original mugshots that I had. Uh, and a part of that was because I thought it was important to share it. Uh, and also a lot of that stuff, especially the old stuff, you need to keep a certain way. And you know, mm. the museum knows how to keep stuff so it's not going to kind of fall apart. But over the years, I've done some speaking engagements and, and always trying to make sure that, you know, Tampa's at the table there mm. and um, working uh, potentially on getting some legal gambling stuff that's housed at USF um, on loan over to the museum there in Vegas for, for an exhibit potentially within the next year or two. I've seen a ton. I've been to Vegas a couple of times in the last couple of years and I've seen a ton of advertising and marketing and there, there's a lot of stuff about the mom museum, uh, out there in Vegas. Do you think it would work here in Tampa, a physical little shop, maybe in Ybor city? I don't They have the Ybor city history museum. I think if they wanted to do a little, add a little add exhibit, a little yeah. you go to the history center downtown, which is an amazing museum. Um, yeah, they have a Belita set there to show. So there, there are a few of the Belita sets around still. So, but uh, yeah, I think we have between the Ebor City Museum and and the Tampa History Center downtown, a pretty great museums here for history. 
Yeah. So it's if if people want to learn more or get the information outside of the tour, outside of looking stuff up online, there there is availability like physically here in town. Yeah. 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 Um, well, listen, Scott, this was super interesting. I really appreciate you coming Thanks on. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, everyone, go pick up Scott's book, Cigar City Mafia. Where can people find the book? Uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, a lot of the local booksellers here. Still Anywhere sell. you buy a book. Anywhere you buy a book. Amazing. And then you've got your newest book out now. Hitman, yeah. Amazing. And then if people want to find you on your website, tampamafia.com, that's where you can book the crime tour and find more information about that. Um, and then do you have any sort of a social media with content like this? Yeah. So to follow either myself or Tampa Mafia, kind of both uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And what are those tags or handles people can look up? Yeah. Tampa Mafia. To, at Tampa at Mafia? Tampa Mafia. Tampa nice. Mafia tours on Facebook, Tampa Mafia on Twitter and Instagram. Amazing. Well, Scott, I appreciate it. Thank you for doing this. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone. Bye-bye.